In fact, I think I've seen, even this week, in the last few days, believers are very divided over that very question. Some are emphatic that social action is the mission of the church, to bring the kingdom to earth through deeds of mercy and justice, while others are equally emphatic that the church has no business in worrying about these issues. Only the gospel, they would say, can change hearts. Christians are not of this world, so why act like it? Add to that, Christians are not entirely sure which issues the church should be concerned with. Is it just issues of abortion and pornography, to give us some examples? Or does it include issues of, like gun control or immigration or racial justice? If I was to poll this room, do you think any, everyone would fall on the same lines with those issues? I've I, I watched social media enough to know the answer to that question. I'm not going to pretend that this morning I'm going to be able to satisfy all of your questions as it pertains to what does it look like to be a Christian in our society, the issues that we face. And I'm not going to give you a checklist of where Christians should stand on the various issues. But it turns out that Jesus was clearer on this question about how it is that citizens of the kingdom of God occupy the kingdom of this world. He was clearer on that question than you might think. And he was clearer on the posture and effect his disciples are to have upon their cities and their neighborhoods and their relationships. The ones that he has placed them in. And this morning we are going to consider a passage that is at the heart of Jesus' most famous sermon and gets to the heart of this question where he makes this clear. Last week we considered the question, I'm very grateful for Peter who's home with sick kiddos today, of how do we love those who are inside the church, those who are particularly different from us. But now we are take, go, going beyond that and taking all that we've looked at with the community of the church and all that we've said about the church being the place where heaven touches earth, where we encounter the power and presence of God himself, a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming. We're going to connect all of that now to what does it look like to be an, a public Christian, to connect the community of the church to the mission of the church by answering this question, how do we love outsiders? Now, if that language offends you a little bit, that there would be insiders and outsiders, I would love to talk to you, but it's one of the things that we've described over the last few weeks. It's actually central to understanding the church, is to understanding those who have confessed faith in Christ, who follow him as Savior and Lord, and those who have not. But how do we love those who don't currently agree with a Christian's convictions on Jesus. Well, we're going to examine this passage, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open and uh, or your uh, open on your phone um, as we look at Matthew chapter 5 in three parts. The road Jesus tells us to take, the ruts we often drift into, and the route to get where he wants us to go. The, ro the road, the ruts, and the roots. I can't help but have three R's, I guess. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. As I mentioned before, though, the, as we look at the first one, the road, this passage shows up in the heart of the most famous sermon that Jesus has ever preached. Anybody know the name of it? The Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has plenty of things to say in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, at its core, though, the Sermon on the Mount is about one thing, and it's about discipleship. It's about what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like for the presence and power of the kingdom of God to live in that world? As those who've come to taste it firsthand, Jesus describes the life of a disciple in the context of the normal and everyday world that you and I occupy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes what might seem to be an abstract concept for us, to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and to follow him, what can seem like an abstract concept, and he puts it on the ground for us. He illustrates for us, for us and applies it in ways that sometimes are just really uncomfortably honest, particularly about the costs that come. I want to look at verse 10 through 11, actually, the verses that we didn't read that come right before this passage, and many biblical scholars, and I would agree with them, would say these verses actually set us up to understand our passage well. In fact, you may have heard these verses uh, read or preached uh, before. Um, you maybe have never read them before. Wonderful. Um, hopefully I can lay a good foundation for you about salt and light. They may be your favorite verses in the whole Bible, but we often miss why Jesus speaks at this moment in these ways. In many ways, we have to set up the context through verses 10 and 11, which I want to read for you, the conclusion of what is often called the Beatitudes. Blessed. Okay, hear that. Happy, truly happy. Blessed by God, favored by God. Hear that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Friends, is that how you would describe the blessed life? Jesus does, though. In fact, he says that he seems to assume that the cost of discipleship is baked into the pie of discipleship. It's only a matter of time, in other words, that Jesus seems to assume that your faith really costs you. Before it costs you dearly to follow him, personal preferences, perhaps even relationships, he assumes cost is baked into that pie. And even while persecution for Western Americans, uh, what we face here, may not be as deadly as the persecution faced by brothers and sisters around the world, we live in a world, I think we can fairly say, that is less and less convinced that Christianity is good for it. If Jesus is right... The fact that costs might be increasing actually shouldn't surprise us. Jesus isn't just being dramatic when he said that following him would involve taking up a cross. But then, if that's true, what should we do? In light of certain persecution and a world which often celebrates what God does not, what kind of posture should Christians take? And as if Jesus anticipates that very question. He gives us verses 13 through 16, and instead of just telling us what to do, he gives us two profound metaphors that have been mentioned by many Christians for generations as characterizing the, the role that a Christian has in engaging the kingdom of this world, the image of salt and the image of light. And let's consider each of them. Let's start with the church as salt, the church as salt. Starting with verse 13, what does it say? You are the salt of the earth. 
Now, uh, when I say salt, I'm curious what comes to your mind. Uh, what comes to my mind usually is, well, so uh, it's kind of, uh, movie snacks. So if, how many of you are more of like a, uh, like when it comes to getting snacks, uh, you are like a sweets person. You love candy bars. You love sweet stuff. How many of you love salty stuff? Like, that's it. That's where it's at. Like, pretzels this morning, you were praising God. It wasn't cookies. It was pretzels, right? Okay. When we think salt, we think of seasoning. We think of something that uh, it, it, uh, you add to a dish in order to bring flavors out, something that um, causes you to get thirsty, like this, uh, something that, um, again, is, uh, spruces up a dish. But in the ancient world, salt was actually not primarily used for that. Of course, they used salt to make things salty. But salt was actually much more necessary to life than that. I'll give you a reason why. When it, in the first century, there was no such thing as a deep freezer. So what does that mean when it comes to storing meat? Especially meat that you didn't particularly want to go rancid in the Middle Eastern sun? Well, you would rub the meat down with salt. You would work salt into the meat. And that salt would dry out the meat and actually seal the meat so that the, uh, that rot didn't set in. That decay was slowed. That was actually the primary purpose of salt. When the first century audience would think of salt, that's what they would think of. It's a preservative. It slows decay. But what, is that, what in the world does that have to do with a Christian? What is it that a Christian preserves? Well, it's fascinating in the Bible, as the Bible describes what sin is. It doesn't just describe sin as a matter of crossing a line, although that's certainly true. There are certain lines that God has said do not cross. But it's much more, sin is much bigger than that, comp more comprehensive than that. When the Bible describes sin, one of the terms it uses is the term corruption, which is the same word as decay. In fact, when you hear this word show up, corruption, you know where you well, what, what kind of context you see it show up in is sometimes a decomposing body, a corrupting body. I know that's super gross. Who wants to talk about that on a Sunday morning? But that's, what that's that image I want you to stick with. That's what sin does. It makes things rancid. It decays. It doesn't just break a rule. It rots relationships. It corrupts systems. It turns entire cultures rancid, let alone a human heart. But when Christians live as distinctive Christians, especially when they live as distinctive Christians as a community in their local churches, they slow the decay around them. I appreciate the way that D.A. Carson, the biblical scholar, puts it. The norms of the kingdom worked out in the lives of the heirs of the kingdom, constitute the witness of the kingdom. Such Christians refuse to rob their employers by being lazy on the job, or to rob their employees by succumbing to greed and stinginess. They are the first to help a colleague in difficulty, last to return a barbed reply. They honestly desire the advancement of the other's interests and honestly dislike smutty humor. Transparent in their honesty and genuine in their concern, meek in personal de demeanor, bold in, in righteous pursuits. This is what a salty Christian looks like. 
And when a Christian lives as a distinctive Christian, it catches the attention of others. But this doesn't just have personal implications, although we must start there. A Christian must be salt in their relationships, stand out as a Christian in those relationships. But Christians throughout the centuries have stood out in much bigger ways than that. Collectively, they've also had, their, their faith has had implications on the cities and cultures that they're a part of. Carson goes on to note how Christians spearheaded the drive for righteousness in the societies they, they lived in, including prison reform, medical care, trade unions, control of a perverted and perverting liquor, liquor trade, the abolition of slavery, the abolition of child labor, the establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In fact, many would say that the very institution of a hospital, how many of you have been to a hospital lately? Hospitals were invented by Christians. Christians transformed by the gospel, in all of these arenas, responded to the gospel in ways that not only caught the attention of others, but actively slowed the decay. History is full of examples of salty Christians who lived like this, whether it's William Wilberforce, who fought to end, to end chattel slavery, the slave trade in Great Britain, or Jonathan Edwards, who defended the poor in the United States, or Amy Carmichael, who rescued orphans, or Martin Luther King Jr., who decried racism, and all of them did it often amidst great opposition. Or you could say Christians who defend the unborn in their mothers today. In fact, I could hardly pick a better example than the recent Dobbs decision, which I'm convinced was brought about not just by justices, but by the faithful efforts of many Christians who were devoted to the cause of life. Faithfulness in advocating for laws that protect our most vulnerable neighbors is an example of what it means to be salt of the earth. Just as it means, it, it looks like when Christians care for those who face crisis pregnancies and attend to the circumstances that led to their crisis. Just like when Christians adopt and foster children and seek to ensure that every child has a safe, permanent, and loving home. Just like it is when Christians offer the good news of forgiveness, of an answer to shame, when someone is racked with guilt over an abortion themselves, over the unthinkable decision that they have made, when a Christian offers them the gospel. Christians stand as salt and light when they do all of these things. Now, I need to answer a really important question because this shows up even in casually in the way that Christians talk. Does this mean that the church's mission is to transform their societies? Is it a church's mission to gain political power? I'll tell you, no. Jesus gives nothing even close to a guarantee that Christians will be able to reform the world around them. The closest thing he gives to a guarantee is that they will be opposed. At the, the end of this same book, though, 
In fact, it, it gives us what the mission of the church is. And it's much more specific. It's much more, it's much clearer, much more limited than this. Matthew chapter 28, the same book in which Jesus delivers these words, tells us, what is the mission of the church? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. The church exists, in other words, to glorify God by doing what? Making disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, and gathering them into his church. That is the goal. Which Jesus, is, this church is something that Jesus, in fact, is building and is committed to and says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is the place where heaven touches earth, the thing that he is committing to adding you to if you are a believer. What do Christians do? What do they devote themselves to the same mission Jesus had? To make disciples and gathering them into his family. The church exists, again, to make disciples. And yes, churches must equip and send believers to do good works. It's one of the purposes this church exists for, is to help you live as a public Christian in your workplaces, in your families, to do good works, as Jesus instructs. In fact, how else are we to obey the teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you? Let me ask you, does that include Jesus' words on the poor? Does that include Jesus' words on money? Yes, absolutely it does. Teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded you. But gathering God's people by the gospel is the goal. We manifest the kingdom in order to welcome others into the kingdom. Christians do not bring the kingdom or grow the kingdom. They welcome others into it. As Jesus puts it, we let our good works be seen in order that others would glorify our Father. The same Father, if you are a Christian, who has loved you and welcomed you at great cost. All that being said, when a Christian experiences that great love, when they taste amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, they can't just turn a blind eye to their neighbor's suffering anymore. Having been loved, how could they not love those who are in front of them, Christian or not? They can't turn a blind eye to the effects of sin, the corruption of sin around them. They know where sin leads, and they know what it's like to experience its corruption firsthand, especially within their hearts. And so the gospel drives them to love their neighbor, to slow the decay, and in so doing, adorn the claims that the gospel makes. It doesn't mean that they treat people as projects or only love their neighbor when they're convinced it will make them a Christian. They love because they have been loved. Whatever opportunities are in front of them, and in so doing, they adorn the claims of the gospel. They don't just tell. They show why the good news is so good. Christians are called to be salty, but they're also called to be light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. And Jesus actually uses two images here of light, and he smashes them together. 
first of a city on a hill, which may not stand out to us as a source of light, but in the ancient world it would be. In the first century, cities were often built of white limestone, and in the hot Near Eastern sun, it would almost be blinding as it shone off those walls in the day. But at the, in the night, when you have thousands of people gathered, yes, with very, very small little oil lamps, you take the collective light of those oil lamps, especially on a dark night without the moon, and it would shine out like a torch in the wilderness for miles around, like a city on a hill. But then Jesus zooms in on a particular light, a oil lamp in one of these homes, which would be of high value, especially on the nights were, which were pitch black. You couldn't just flip on the kitchen light or relied on the light pollution from the city far away. Sometimes the only source of light you had was this little lamp. As small as it was, it would be precious, even a form of protection for a family. Maybe from criminals who were looking to take advantage of others in the dark to carry out their theft and violence under the cover of night. The light would protect them. It would illuminate the whole house. What does this have to do with being a public Christian? Well, sticking with the lamp illustration, I want to give you a, another lamp illustration. Uh, maybe you've experienced this. How many of you have ever been on a cave tour? Okay, I'm a little claustrophobic. I don't like caves, but I've done a few of these tours. How, and you've probably experienced what I have too. What do they always do at some point during the cave tour? They turn off the lights. See, I didn't even need to tell you, right? So you turn off the lights, right? And everybody laughs uncomfortably when it happens, right? But say, this went on for like 10 minutes. Then it went on for 20. And then it went on for an hour. And then you realized your guide had snuck out. Not so funny anymore, would it? Light is life in that situation. Even the smallest, most feeble light wouldn't just be a convenience. It would be the difference between life and death. Light reveals what is pure as opposed to what is filthy. It reveals truth as opposed to error. It reveals life as opposed to what leads to death. In other words... Jesus expects that Christians would not only slow the decay of sin and its corruption, they would not only be salt, they would reveal the way to life. That they would expose the light of God's word upon their relationships, upon their societies, upon their conversations, upon their own governments. They would expose the word of God. And often reveal the things, the very things that people would rather keep in the dark. After all, hasn't the word done that to us? Stirred up a bunch of ugly inside our own hearts? And what does John 3 warn us? That those who experience the light, they want to hide in the dark? They want to keep their deeds from being exposed? Do we expect that light is always welcomed as a good thing? No. But light nonetheless exposes what is in the dark in order to save us from its danger. As John Stott puts it, all of us believe in the power of the truth of the gospel. We love to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1, 16. I mean, amen. We're convinced of the power of the gospel and evangelism, that it brings salvation and redemption to those who respond and believe in Jesus. But it, is, it isn't only the gospel that is powerful. All God's truth is powerful, John Stott said. God's word of whatever kind is more powerful 
than the devil's lies. As John said in the prologue to the fourth gospel, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of course it cannot, he says. That light is the truth of God. Friends, when a Christian, when a Christian knows and makes known what God has said, particularly when they offer the gospel itself, life and light break out as well. Yes, a Christian's good works make a case for the gospel. How else do we think we can be taken seriously as Christians if our life is a blatant contrast to what we offer in Christ? But the gospel, and hear me when I say this, the gospel can't actually be seen if it is not also heard. The gospel can't be seen if it is not also heard. Those around you will fill in the gaps on their own. You will probably not often be asked, tell me what's so different about your life. People are expert at connecting the dots. The gospel cannot be seen if it is not also heard. Salt and light, slowing, rot, and revealing the truth. That is the road of a public Christian. But I want us to notice that Jesus has some warnings to give along the way. Ruts that we often drift into and sometimes fall. Let's consider each of them. We're going to consider our second point, the ruts. Before we do, how many of you have ever hit rumble strips on the highway? Okay, hopefully not very often. If you're hitting rumble strips often... You need to go back to driver's ed. Okay, so the rumble strips are to keep you away from them, right? So rumble strips, what do they do? They warn you from danger that's on the other side, right? So keep you from the ruts. And depending how deep the ruts, it can be life-threatening. Sometimes it's just an inch or two. Excuse me. Sometimes it's a couple feet. These rumble strips warn us of the danger. And one of the fascinating things about verse 13 through 16 is that Jesus doesn't just tell us how his disciples should live in times of, of opposition and skepticism. Um, Grace, could you grab me some water, possibly? Thank you. Should live in times of opposition and skepticism. Doesn't just tell them how they should live when it begins to cost them for their faith. No, he knows us too well. Jesus knows that we, thank you very much. Um, Excuse me. Much better. Praise the Lord. He is the water. He is the yeah, living water. Okay, so here we go. So rumble strips on the highway. Stick with me here. He warns us. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He knows that we are going to drift away from these things. He knows that we're going to drift right into ruts that can be deadly. And so he gives us some rumble strips to warn us. And I want to talk about these warnings. I want to look at two of these warnings particularly. I want two ruts that I think that we drift into, and one is on the left, if you will, and one is on the right. Let's look at the one on the left, rut number one, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, those of us who have a science background look at this passage, and I just, I'm sure there's one person here who is just asking the question, ah, wait, I'm sorry, how can salt lose its saltiness? That's like not a thing, if you didn't know that. So salt doesn't just like expire. Go grab the uh, 
Morton's salt shaker that's been gathering dust in the back of your cupboard for 10 years, it's still going to be salty. Okay, so salt doesn't lose its saltiness over time. What is Jesus referring to? Well, actually, in the first century, salt was uh, collected from salt marshes, particularly sometimes from the Dead Sea, and it would be gathered after it had dried up, and they would scrape the crystals off. And they would sell the salt in the marketplace. The problem was, is as you scraped the surface, you can imagine, not everything that you scraped was salt. Some of the crystals could be gypsum or something else that appears to be salt, but you scrape it into the bag and you sell it in the market. Somebody tastes it and it's worthless. You might as well rub sand on your meat. It's a saltless salt. These mixtures were diluted. The only thing you could do with them was to toss them out. Jesus' point here is it's highly possible for someone who identifies as a Christian to lose their distinctiveness as a Christian, to lose their saltiness, to no longer be recognizable as a Christian, regardless of what they claim. And there are several reasons why a Christian loses their distinctiveness. But one that stands out to me more and more that I hear very often, and it's a desire to be relatable, relevant to not be lumped in with those christians over here and can we be honest we know who those christians are those religious people who often i mean they're just sometimes cruel and just plain weird we do not want to be equated lumped in with that crowd and so some of us play down our christianity in the hopes that we can build a friendship first maybe show them how normal we are and then they'll take the gospel seriously if we can be honest, though, at, the, at its core, it's, it's not actually a desire to be relevant and relatable. It has more to do with us being liked. We're afraid. Now, I'm saying this to myself, of being sidelined for our Christian convictions, of being lumped in with the bigots, with the racists, with the holier-than-thou-know-it-alls. And if we're honest... It doesn't take much to be branded as one of them today. To be branded as one of those who are on the wrong side of history. There are all sorts of increasing pressures, in fact, to fall in line with prevailing opinions, whether about gender and sexual ethics, or about race, or about rights, or about tolerance, or money including serious consequences if I don't fall in line with the current prevailing opinion. Friends, it's, it's entirely understandable why we would be counting the cost of what, it, of what not putting the rainbow flag out on my desk might mean. Or failing to use someone's preferred pronouns. But before we know it, we might find that we have so privatized our faith that those around us might be honestly surprised to find out that our faith pl plays much of a serious role in our lives at all. And maybe it doesn't. Friends, do people around you see your faith affecting your education choices? How you spend your money? How you vote? How you speak to your spouse, your children, your grandchildren? Do they see how your faith impacts how you speak to those you disagree with? Particularly those 
whose positions you find to be unloving. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying, trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, notice in this verse, there is no such thing as keeping one hold, one hand on the approval of others and the one hand on the approval of God. You cannot do it. It pulls apart. It's like trying to ride two horses at the same time. Friends, to be a servant of Christ means to be concerned with one type of approval. I'm not saying we shouldn't, we, I'm, here's what, I, I need to say this, especially as we talk about living distinct. I'm not saying that Christians should be actively picking fights around them, especially not on social media or at the dinner table. I'm not saying that just because someone disagrees with you as well, on, about disagrees with you because of who you voted for or what your stance is on gun control, that you're experiencing persecution. I've, ex I've seen this before where somebody is disagreeing because of the particular political candidate they voted for. Well, we knew we'd be persecuted for Jesus' sake. That's not persecution, okay? I'm also not saying that you should go out and slap a Joy FM sticker on your car or use hashtag blessed on all your posts or only watch movies with Kirk Cameron in them. The Pharisees might have done some of the same things today. Jesus expects those who have been welcomed into the kingdom will live like it. They will smell like it. He expects that his disciples will be clearly and consistently distinctive. That Christians would be distinctive, especially as Christians together. And yes, it's going to make certain conversations and relationships awkward. It may be easy for some to silence and, and to relegate you to a certain kind of category. But Christians must be distinctive as Christians. And even as there is a rut on that side, there is a rut on the other side, on the right. And we need to look at verse 14 and 15 for this. Again, looking at light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. The point here is actually pretty clear. A city on a hill, there is just no way you're going to hide that. And it seems to miss the point of a lamp to light a lamp and then hide it under a mixing bowl. And yet there are many believers who try to do the exact same thing when it comes to their witness as a Christian. These believers, in fact, and I'm saying again this to myself, they might agree with everything I've said over here about compromise, about this rut. They are, in fact, experts at condemning Christians who look just like the world. And sometimes they're experts at pointing at the, all the ways that our culture is losing its moral compass and going straight to hell in a handbasket. They may even have all the external markers of a Christian, but they have also become isolated from others. They've bunkered themselves down in order to avoid all the corruption out there. And sometimes they felt that they were doing Christ's work by lobbing grenades over their self-made walls. In other words, they have found a different way to avoid the costs that come with following Jesus. 
Instead of avoiding conflict by playing down their Christian convictions and isolating their faith to only certain areas of their life where they, it's safe to let it out to breathe, instead they, they avoid conflict by cutting themselves off from those who don't share their Christian convictions. Instead of a posture of compassion and readiness for disagreement, instead of leaning into the awkwardness that it is to be a public Christian with people who don't agree, they adopt a, peer, a posture of fear and resentment. They keep themselves isolated, hanging out for Jesus' return, while taking shots at the outside world. They become just as good at canceling people as those who are in the outside world do. Before you know it, these Christians can't name a single non-Christian they have a real friendship with, let alone those they are actively trying to persuade to faith. And the worst thing is, we can somehow think that just because we are facing an absence of conflict and disagreement in our lives, that God is somehow validating how we have chosen to structure them. At one level, I get it and I feel it. There are some contexts where it's, it is unwise to place ourselves and those we love. We do underestimate how we are being actively formed, even unconsciously, by entertainment. Yes, Netflix is forming what we love by our phones. Every time you pick it up, you are storing up your treasure somewhere. By sports, as it demands your time, your allegiances and priorities. By our coaches, by our teachers, by our professors. We are being actively and unconsciously formed all the time to believe and assume certain things. And sometimes the most important thing we can do is remove ourselves from certain situations and circumstances. And, but when we cut ourselves off entirely from the very contexts where Christians are made to shine, when we lack both proximity to and relationships with non-believers, what chance do we have that anyone would actually be compelled by our faith? As Jesus urges, let your light shine before others so that they may, what? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, the, the reason Jesus says this is because he assumes there, there is a reason we would want to hide. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it, flight to the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Anyone else feel just a little convicted by this? <laughs> I'm like, this is hard for me to preach. Christians must be distinctive and they also must be seen. In fact, Jesus seems to assume that a disciple that is neither distinctive nor seen is not only of little good to those around them, they may not be a disciple at all. Just like salt can't be flavorless and light can't be dark, neither can one who is truly awakened to the gospel continue to remain compromised and unseen. So what is the hope for those who feel convicted by all of this? Well, having considered the road to loving outsiders, 
as well as the ruts that we fall into either side, I want to consider the route. The route Jesus wants us to take. Now, as Jesus promised, in the first century, among the first Christians, it turns out the, I should say first three centuries, the first Christians uh, in the Roman world, they, the Roman world was uniquely hostile towards them. In fact, according to biblical scholar and historian Larry Hurtado, their exclusive worship of God didn't just make them strange, it actually created huge social problems for Christians. Public Christians not only were widely ridiculed by cultural elites and excluded from public gatherings and business circles, Christians often suffered physical violence and many were even put to death. Getting all, a lot of this from an article put together by Timothy Keller. Christians weren't simply deemed as awkward in the first three centuries of the church. They were considered disruptive and subversive. Christians were considered the threat to a stable society and to what many considered the good life to be. It's no wonder that historians like Larry Hurtado have asked, why on, the, why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries of Christianity? Given all that it cost them. In fact, this is, that's one of the title of his, titles of his books. You can assume, many of us, and, and probably rightly, that it was because of their beliefs. Indeed, one of the main reasons people began to take Christianity seriously in the first century was because of its distinctive beliefs, including its offer of a direct, personal love relationship with the Creator God, as well as the assurance that salvation came apart from human effort and came only by grace. Those were unique and distinct claims of Christianity. No other religion offered anything like that. However, it wasn't just Christian beliefs, it wasn't just Christian beliefs that proved so compelling. It was the kind of community that Christians developed together. It was the churches and the community within them that were magnetic to the watching world. A community that could only be described as salt and light. As Timothy Keller summarizes, what Christianity called new believers into wasn't just a different culture. It was a complete counterculture, which at times offended and attracted those around them. In the first century, the Christians, they, they stood out, though, nonetheless, whether offending or attract, attract, attracting. Not, we need to say that they stood out regardless. And uh, Tim Keller gives uh, at least some examples, and I could spend a whole morning talking about each of these, and I won't. But let me list some of them. First was the shocking diversity of their community. As they gathered rich and poor, slave and free, men and women, Jew and Gentile, they gathered people who should not be friends together in a gathering where it was awkward and strange, assuming they could all be one in Christ. They also were distinct in their relational life. They taught forgiveness and reconciliation even for enemies. And some of them were each other's previous enemies. They called each other peacemakers. And they refused to match the violence and hatred and false accusations they received. They, they refused to match them in kind. They refused to reciprocate evil for evil, only good. Third, they defended the sanctity of life. Now, in the first century, abortion was rare, 
but infanticide was not. It was common for infants who were unwanted to be left out, exposed to the cold, allowed the cold to do whatever it would with them. It was understood and permissible for a family to do that. Christians not only rescued these babies, they raised them as their own. Or it was the Christian sexual ethics, which causes many fights today, caused just as many fights for a church like Corinth. They taught abstinence from any sex outside of a heterosexual marriage, and they refused to embrace the sexual norms around them, even at great social cost. And let me tell you, the sexual norms would cause our culture to blush. Or it was their care for the poor, demonstrating radical generosity for others. Others who were outside their family, outside their racial group, outside their religion even. Even during the urban plagues, where massive amounts of people died and people fled as quickly as they could. You know who stayed were the Christians, caring for the sick and the dying, and sometimes at the cost of their lives. As Tim Keller points out, it was because the early church did not fit in with its surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love, that Christianity eventually had such an impact on it. But given the fact that they probably struggled just as much with the same fears and insecurities that we do, the same love for approval and comfort and control and power that we do, how is it that they were so, a so able to freely give it up? Only because they came to love something more, the glory of God. In John 17, we find what is called the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus's, one of Jesus' final prayers. One of the longest prayers we have in the entire Bible for his disciples. And let's remind each other, too, this, the context of this prayer would be on the very night he would be betrayed by those disciples where they would lose all distinctiveness as his disciples, and they would only want to run and hide. He prays for those he knows will abandon him, who will submit to the fear of men rather than the fear of God. What does he say? Verse 14 through 19. I, this is Jesus speaking, have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This passage, you probably can see, has a lot of overlap with the one we just looked at. Again, these words come from Jesus. First, his assertion that they are not of this world. I don't know how many times I've heard that quoted to me. That's very true, that Christians must be distinct from the world. They must be salty disciples in a dark and decaying world. But also, he makes a point to say that he has not taken them out of the world, nor does he ask God to. He has not sent them into hiding either. They are to be seen as a city on a hill. They are in the world, not of it. They are like lights in dark places, illuminating the truth and trustworthiness of God's word, particularly the gospel. And finally, notice that 
they wouldn't necessarily be loved for it. In fact, all of this, them seeking the good of those around them, living as salt and light, would only intensify the rejection and hatred of others. Jesus promises, just as they hated me, they will hate you. However, I want you to notice verse 19 particularly. Can we put that verse back on the screen? Christ, let's, can we put that, there we go. Notice, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Consecrate and sanctified are actually very related. Both mean something along the lines of set apart. Read it this way. For their sake, I set myself apart, that they also may be set apart in truth. Set apart for what? Or more importantly, set apart to who? It's not the world. It's not to scratch out significance and security and approval on its terms. They are set apart to God himself. In other words, Jesus set himself apart for what? A brutal and lonely death, thrown out and trampled as tasteless salt, the light of the world extinguished by men, so that we might not be simply forgiven, but remade, that we might be freed and set apart to serve his glory and no one else's, including our own. The light of the world, that light has caught, caught fire and made us lights of the world, that we might glorify your Father in heaven. This is what the earliest Christians came to know and what enabled them to remain patient and public about their faith even when hits came for it. And that alone is what can enable us as well. Only the gospel is sufficient to infuse both great humility and great courage. Only the gospel can keep us from both compromise and from isolation. Only the gospel can give us thicker skin and larger hearts because it frees us from the need to live for anyone else's glory but God's. Jesus calls us to be salt and light, and by the gospel he has given us the power to do so. Father, we come to you as those who love the glory of people, the approval of others more than we do your own. We still actively live as if our significance could be found there, and we need your forgiveness and your help to cause the gospel to come alive to our imaginations, to see what our Savior has set himself apart to so that we might know what we are set apart for. By his life and death and resurrection, we have been freed from the need to scratch out our scratch out our significance in human-made glory, but rather to surrender ourselves to the glory of the living God, that more might see him, more might know him, more might worship him with us, might give ourselves to the making of disciples, delaying decay and exposing the truth of the word of God upon our hearts first upon every relationship we're in. Give us wisdom to know how to act in the relationships you've placed us, how to repent as those who fear people too much, and how to walk in power as distinctive and seen salt and light. All this to the glory of Christ himself, we pray.